The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Last Sunday, we looked at the story of Jesus' encounter with this rich young ruler who wanted to know how to find eternal life. That was my New Year's message. And before moving on to the next passage in Luke, I want to dwell on this story for one more Sunday. Um, <clears throat> and so let's take a look at Luke chapter 18, verses 8. Last week we looked at verses 18 to 30, but I want to expand the text a bit to this morning to include verses 31 to 34. And it reads, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Let's pray. God, again, we ask as we do every Sunday as we gather in your name that the Spirit would open our eyes to see the truths that are hidden in these words. What may appear plain in our eyes is only the surface of much deeper truths that can only be revealed by your Holy Spirit. And so we invite that Spirit's work to be accomplished in our hearts. We also pray for a humbling and a breaking in our hearts as well, that we would be the kind of soil that could receive the seed of your word and bear much fruit in our lives. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you may, if you were here last Sunday, uh, and if you weren't, I would actually encourage you to listen to the podcast of that message because I'm not going to actually do a review like I typically do and rehash uh, all the major points that I did in last week's sermon, but... uh, you may have noticed, and maybe not even just noticed, but been bothered by the fact that I didn't address in preaching the sermon last week the huge elephant in the room, which is the issue of money. 
Uh, I did this intentionally because I wanted to focus today's message uh, almost completely on the money issue. Uh, There's no way to get around the fact that it was specifically money that proved to be the greatest obstacle that stood between this rich ruler and eternal life. Read superficially, it's very easily to totally misunderstand what's happening in this story. A man who sincerely wants to be saved and who appears willing to follow Jesus comes asking about how do I have eternal life? How do I gain eternal life? And it seems like Jesus is basically pushing this man away, telling him to sell everything he owns and to follow him. This is the price of admission if you want salvation. The demand seems so extreme, so ridiculous. In fact, this is the only record of Jesus demanding this of anyone in the Gospels. Uh, When they ask about salvation, to specifically say, sell all your worldly possessions if you want to follow me. It feels like Jesus is just picking on this guy, doesn't it? it? It even can feel like an injustice has been done, perpetrated by Christ himself. Jesus has rejected a sincere seeker wanting to be saved by placing a demand on him that is so high that basically no one could meet it. I think everyone that witnessed these events that day, they had their breath taken away by what they witnessed. I think every one of them must have had a sinking feeling in their gut when they walked, when they watched this guy walk away saddened and unsaved. If this is the gospel according to Jesus, which of us can be saved? Which one of us even stands a chance if this is his gospel? Maybe you feel that same pit in your stomach when you read this text. And maybe you wonder, where does grace fit into any of this? If this is God's standard, how can anyone expect to be saved? Or maybe there is another way to understand what's happening here. To be saved is to believe in more than simply Jesus as a ticket to heaven. To be saved is to believe that Jesus is Lord and that he alone deserves our total worship. I don't doubt for a minute that this rich ruler wanted to be saved. But wanting to be saved is not enough to be saved. By choosing his wealth over Jesus, he clearly didn't understand who Jesus really was. We can only be saved by grace. We can never earn our salvation. Let's establish that once and for all. You cannot earn your salvation. That's why Jesus replies to those witnessing this encounter, just in case they misunderstand this, What is impossible with men is possible with God. But here is the question. What exactly is the work of God that he does in our life 
when he saves us by this grace? I think it is to open our eyes to see that there is nothing that we give up in this life for his namesake that won't be returned to us many times over in the life that is to come. And ultimately that Jesus is more than worthy of any sacrifice that he asks us to make on his behalf. Now, I'll be the first to acknowledge we don't get this total surrender overnight, okay? There is a growth process involved here in learning how to surrender all we have to God. But if we are truly saved, there must be some evidence of this work in our life, of a genuine surrender that reveals that our eyes have been opened to see the value of Christ, to see that he is worthy of a sacrifice like this. It's not about heroism or radicalness. It's about eyes of faith that see the value of the person that calls us to follow him. In Luke chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's interesting that in talking about money, Jesus uses the language of worship and devotion rather than economics. He personifies money. He describes it like a god. Actually, the real word here in Greek is not money. It's mammon or mammona. It's a god. Money becomes something that, in other words, Jesus says, we not just use, that we just spend, but we end up serving it like an idol. Tim Keller says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children or career and making money or achievement and critical acclaim or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in the Christian ministry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something. But perhaps the best one is worship. As I shared and unpacked in my Ephesians series a few years back, uh, Keller describes what he makes a distinction between what he calls surface idols and 
deep idols. The surface idols are the more concrete, readily observable things that are in the world that we chase after, like money or sex or family. But underneath these surface idols, Keller argues, are deeper idols. These are idols like power, the approval of others, security, emotional or physical comfort. These are the deepest longings of the human soul. And the point is that we use these surface idols, like sex or money or family, to really get at the deeper idols that are at the deepest levels of the human heart. Um, For example, two people may idolize sex but for two completely different reasons. One person sees sex as a powerful instrument to get their deeper idol of security and belonging. When I give my body to someone, that person accepts me and loves me, and I know I have a home. I know I have somebody that worth, values me, sees me as worthwhile. Or another person uses sex to feed the deeper idol of control and power. When I use my body, I control that person. I own that person. That person is mine. And so I am feeding the deeper idol of power. And in that dynamic, money becomes one of the most powerful surface idols that we face in our life. You can almost argue it's the universal surface idol that all of us struggle with. Why? Because... So many of our deeper idolatries can be met through money. That's the power of money. Whether your hunger is for power and control, or security, or status, or physical comfort, money seems to offer the answer to achieve all of those things. Whatever is the deepest longing in your heart, You need to acknowledge that money can help you get those things. It's very easy to look at the shopaholic, the materialistic person who is always racking up a credit card debt and always buying the finest things and saying, yeah, that person is a slave to money. Money is that person's idol. But the same could be true of the person that lives a pretty modest lifestyle and yet is accruing and accruing and saving money. Because the deeper idol they're feeding with that money is a need for security. Security is actually your God. And money is your means of getting it. And so the truth is, though outwardly no one would call you materialistic, you are very stingy when it comes to giving to the things of God. You don't have a generous spirit. Why? Because the truth is, there is another idol that sits on the throne of your life. It's the need to gain wealth, to find security for yourself. And I want to ask you that question this morning. What is the role that money plays for you? What does money buy you that you need in your life that becomes a God substitute? What does it help you obtain that you feel you cannot live without? 
In Luke chapter 12, verse 13 to 15, it says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You see, the man wanted Jesus to advocate on his behalf, commanding his brother to give him his share, his fair share of his inheritance. He didn't have any shame in making this request. After all, Jesus was a religious man. He was a rabbi. And he thought, why don't you use your God-given authority to settle this matter and do what's right? Because I'm on the right side of the law in this. You see, to this man, it was purely a justice issue. Getting what he rightly deserved. But it's interesting. Jesus totally turns the tables on him and says, you think this is primarily a problem of justice. But in my eyes, I see it as a problem of greed. You don't realize how much greed is consuming your heart. It's interesting that Jesus says, watch out. Be on your guard against the many ways that greed tends to manifest itself in your life. We're not given this warning about almost any other sin in the Bible. To be on your guard. To be careful, because this sin sneaks up on you. No one in the middle of committing adultery suddenly says to the person they're sleeping with, Hey, wait a minute. You're not my wife. I mean, when you're committing adultery, when you struggle with lust, everybody knows your struggle with lust. You know when you have an anger problem. These are pretty self-evident sins that are right in front of you. But what Jesus is saying is, is this. But greed is a sin unlike any other. Because with greed comes its own set of self-justifying defense mechanisms that help you to feel that you're not guilty of it. Nobody thinks they're greedy. Nobody has much guilt about this sin. I'm even guessing that as I preach this message right now, you feel like it applies to the people that are the other side of the bell curve from you, who are on the upper echelons of the income bracket in the U.S. And you say, that's not me. What's crazy is like 80, 90% of Americans think they're middle class, right? No one thinks that they're rich. You know, it's that self-justification. There are plenty of people wealthier than me. Uh, I wish I could help out more in this matter. But we're just scraping by ourselves. We're just trying to pay the bills. As a result of all this, no one thinks that they're guilty of the sin of greed. As Jesus pointed out to the rich ruler, the battle in our hearts between God and money is a battle of where we will ultimately place our hope. In verse 22, it said, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And Come, follow me. I think what Jesus is saying is this, you must choose where you will store up your treasures. You've got to make a choice. You can't have it both ways. I know you think you can, But it doesn't work that way, is what Jesus says. You see, the reason why we can't have it both ways, why he says you can't serve both God and money, although you think you can, 
is because he says, the danger of money is that it keeps pulling our hearts away from the hope of heaven and instead makes us put all of our hopes in the dreams and hopes of this life. That's the destructive power of money. Is that you end up through money building your own little kingdom in this life. And the truth is you eventually lose your appetite for heaven. And so not surprisingly, when you choose that path in life, you become just as terrified of death as an unbeliever. Why? Because death means the end to everything that you've put your hopes and dreams in. In this life. In this world. Rather than the one that is to come. Everything that I've invested in, I'm going to lose when I die. And that's a terrifying thought, even to many Christians. Jesus says, you got to declare an allegiance here. You can't straddle this fence on this one. I know it's, you think you can, but that is a naive position because you don't understand the grip that money will have on you. And as you begin to pour your soul and your resources and your time into these things, it's not going to be easy to recover from that. For the last several months, I've been playing this silly little game called Juice Jam on my iPad. It's one of these dumb matching games like Candy Crush. Uh, and you need an internet connection in order to track your progress through the levels. But the thing is, you can still play it offline when you're not connected to the internet. So I've been playing this on my iPad whenever I have a break. And uh, so next time you connect to the internet, it'll sync with the server, and it'll update any levels that you've advanced to, and everything's okay with the world, you know? <laughs> um, and uh, for like couple of months, I was stuck on this impossible level. I think all these games put these levels in to try to make you spend money, you know? But I, I refuse to spend money on this game, you know? So I'm like, if I can't make it for free, I'm never going to pass this level. So one day I'm playing it offline, not connected to the internet, and I finally passed this level. And I was celebrating, you know? Woohoo, you know? The next time my iPad connects to the internet, it syncs with the server, but there's a glitch, and it doesn't register that I passed that level. In my head, I told myself, who cares? It's just a stupid game anyway. But the truth is, I felt a little sick in my stomach that day, honest to God. I felt a little nauseated. Why? Because all that hard work that I put in passing that level, and because of a dumb computer glitch, I have to go another two months to try to pass this dumb level. Luke chapter 12, verse 34 says this, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Listen, it's true that we invest our time and resources in the things that really matter to us. But what Jesus is saying is that the opposite is also true. Where you invest your time and resources, your heart is going to grow in affection and passion 
and love for those things. And that's the question I want to ask you this morning. Where are you storing up your treasures? What, if you were to lose it, would create that sinking feeling in your gut? Almost make you feel sick to your stomach, like you're going to throw up. Because that's where your heart is, whether you're honest about it or not. That is where your heart is. There is an illusion that we can have it all. But Jesus says, you can't serve both God and money. Eventually, one of those devotions is going to win out. And you're going to grow to despise the other thing. And that other thing may be God himself. You may come to see God as your greatest enemy when he threatens the kingdom that you have built for yourself. If you are investing the vast majority of your money to feeding your idols, your appetite for God will eventually shrivel up. But if you invest your money in God's kingdom, the world will have less and less of a grip on your heart. That's the promise of God. It's interesting that right after the encounter with the rich ruler, He talks to his disciples about all of the suffering that he is going to endure in the coming days when they finally reach Jerusalem. It seems so out of place with what just happened with this rich young ruler, totally coming out of left field. But I think Jesus is telling his disciples something really important following up on this encounter with the rich ruler. What he says is, choosing to follow me is choosing a life that is not going to be easy. It's not going to be the easy road. It's not going to be the popular road. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross. It's not a life that leads to comfort or riches or anything that seems desirable by the eyes of the world. In fact, it's going to cost you everything to follow me. So then here is the question. Who in their right mind would willingly choose this life? I don't think anyone would unless God does a work in our hearts and opens our eyes to see how truly valuable Jesus is. Peter says in verse 28, well, we did that, Jesus. We left our homes. We left everything to follow you. And the question is this. Why were these disciples able to do what this rich ruler couldn't do? Was it because they were crazier, more radicalized than he was? Was it because they were more courageous or heroic than the rich ruler? Or in our more cynical interpretation, you can say, well, the truth is they were poor fishermen. They had less to lose. So, of course, it was easier than this rich ruler who was filthy rich. Peter himself gives the explanation for why they were able to leave everything and follow Jesus when many others could not. In his second letter to the churches, he writes in 2 Peter 1.16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
we beheld his glory. We saw his worth and his beauty firsthand. You see, recognizing the danger of money is not enough to overcome that temptation. Andrew Carnegie, one of the wealthiest men in the world during his days, uh, by the age of 30, acquired great wealth. Uh, And at the age of 33, wrote in his journal, and I'm paraphrasing here to sort of update the English, man must have an idol. Amassing wealth is one of the worst kinds of idolatry. No idol debases a person more than the worship of money. Whatever I pursue in life, I must make every effort to choose a life that will most elevate my character. To continue like I am for much longer, completely consumed by my business and focusing almost completely on ways to make more money in the shortest time will degrade me beyond any hope of permanent recovery. What an amazing insight and confession by one of the wealthiest men in the nation. And yet, despite this deep insight, it was not enough to keep him from the corrupting power of money because he ended up going down the very road that he journaled about and warmed himself of in his younger age. You know, it's interesting. As a philanthropist, Carnegie built some amazing things. Think about Carnegie Hall. And he built over 2,000 libraries in his name. And they were interviewing one of the steelworkers that worked in his factory. And this is what the steelworker said. Don't build us a library. Just pay us a livable wage. Because the truth is, he built his wealth on the abuse of his employees, most of which lived at the poverty line in squalor. They were required under his rules to do 12-hour shifts in backbreaking work. And then every two weeks were required to pull a ridiculous, inhumane 24-hour shift, after which they were given one day off. That's how Carnegie built his wealth. You see, money promises to give you the same things that God does. But in the end, money only enslaves you. And this is the nature of all idols. They promise to satisfy the deepest longings of the human spirit. They say that they will give you everything you want. But in the end, they end up just robbing your soul. And they take everything from you. And that's the complete opposite of Jesus who gave up everything for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus, unlike all the idols in our world, fulfills his promise to us. I'm the only one that truly loves you. I'm the only one that will deliver on the promise. Jesus gave up his wealth and became poor so that through his poverty, we might know riches far greater than we could have ever imagined. Max Lucado writes, Christianity in its purest form is nothing more than seeing Jesus. To see his majesty and to imitate him. 
That is the sum of Christianity. Just because one has witnessed the thousand rainbows doesn't mean he's seen the grandeur of one. One can live near a garden and fail to focus on the splendor of the flower. A man can spend a lifetime with a woman and never pause to look into her soul. And a person can be all that goodness calls him to be and still never see the author of life. Being honest or moral or even religious doesn't necessarily mean we will see him. No, we may see what others see in him, or we may hear what some say he did, but until we see him for ourselves, until our own sight is given, we may think we see him, having in reality seen only a hazy form in the gray semi-darkness. Have you seen him? Have you seen him? The rich young ruler couldn't see the worth of Jesus that day. And so he walked away disappointed, clutching onto his wealth. And I want to say this. I, I don't know fully where to go with a message like this. I wish I could give you 10 practical steps. You know, I wish I could be Dave Ramsey and give you bondage-breaking tools to get free of the love of money. But as I look at this passage... The only answer I see is to see Jesus, to be so consumed by his beauty that you just let go of your pocketbook and it doesn't even feel like a fight anymore. Because as we saw C.S. Lewis say last week, these are all just these cravings in my soul. They're just signposts pointing me to the real treasure. And when you find the real treasure, none of the cheap counterfeits even seem desirable anymore. If you can't see Jesus' worth, if you cannot see his beauty, what I can say to you is this. Pray that God would open your eyes. Because that's the only way you're going to be set free from your materialism. Pray to see him as he truly is. You cannot generate this by your own efforts. You cannot be heroic about this. But you can ask God for it. As Jesus says, what is impossible with men is possible with God. The degree to which Jesus meets your deepest longings, that will be the strength by which you will be set free from the things of this world. And I also want to say this. If at one point you saw his worth, but you now struggle to see it as a veteran Christian, and follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to take your eyes off of this world and return your gaze to the beauty of Christ. Paul urges the Colossian believers in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 to 5, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. I think the answer is worship. White, hot worship. For God, 
that reignites the passion of our soul and reminds us of the worth of the God that we worship. Tim Keller says, idolatry is not just a failure to obey God. It is setting of the whole heart on something besides God. This cannot be remedied only by repenting that you have an idol or using willpower to try to live differently. Turning from idols is not less than those two things, but it is also far more. Setting the mind and heart on things above, where your life is hid with Christ in God, means appreciation, rejoicing, and resting in what Jesus has done for you. It entails joyful worship, a sense of God's reality and prayer. Jesus must become more beautiful to your imagination, more attractive to your heart than your idol. That is what will replace your counterfeit gods. If you uproot the idol and fail to plant the love of Christ in its place, the idol will grow back. Rejoicing in Christ is also crucial because idols are almost always good things. If we have made idols of work and family, we do not want to stop loving our work and our family. Rather, we want to love Christ so much more that we are not enslaved by our attachments. That's the secret, really, isn't it? I mean, if your idol is your children, what are you going to do? Send them to an orphanage? Of course not. You have to love your kids, but as Jesus says, you've got to love me more. You should be faithful in your work, and you should make a livelihood and put dinner on your table. It's not sin to own a house in the suburbs, but you should love Jesus more than that house. And that is why love for God is the only thing that is going to set us free. Not guilt or legalism or even repentance and the removal of the idol. As I was preparing this message, God was just stirring so many things in my heart personally because I feel like so much of my personal journey has been characterized by forks in the road where I was looking at a devotion to either money or to God. I mean, that's how I would literally characterize every major decision that I made in my life. Even as a young teenage kid, that was the battle was I was going to be a doctor like my father and make boatloads of money and live a good life. And then when I read through scripture as a freshman in high school, God just turned those dreams upside down and said, what are you living for, Steve? Is that really why I created you? And I don't know how he did it. But in that moment, he broke a bondage that I had known my entire young life to give up that dream and surrendered that hope of being a doctor. And then eventually, interestingly, he returned that vision of being a doctor, but this time to be a missionary. And so I went to medical school, went to residency. And during residency, had my first two daughters. And then that same battle reemerged. As I was on the cusp of graduating from residency, And holding my infant daughter, Joy, in my arms, it all came back to me. Except now it wasn't about the materialism of my single life. It was about the security that I yearned for as a father and husband. And as I held my precious daughter in my hands, I thought, 
how am I going to pay for her college tuition, you know, on a missionary salary? There's no way. And I realized I was just months away from being able to earn a very nice income and save a very nice nest egg for my children. And there was a real temptation in that moment to give up those dreams of being a missionary and just work as a doctor in America. And I, listen, I'm not saying it's wrong. We have doctors in our church. Oh, you sinners. You know? I'm not saying that, okay? I'm not saying that. But this was a fork in the road. God was calling me to the mission field, and yet there I felt the pull of money and what money could provide. Fast forward to 2009, when I came on staff here at ICC, and when I returned for medical leave as a missionary, that same fork in the road faced me once again. I remember thinking, I put in my time as a missionary for five years in Africa. We lived in the bush, you know? What would be so wrong with me returning now to work as a doctor? Earn some of the lost income. Because my daughter's in high school now. And she's going to go to college. And that's when Pastor Reggie came into my life and said, do you want to come to ICC? <laughs> you know? And that's also when some other weird circumstances were happening. So I decided to come to ICC. But the funny thing I realized was we never for a minute in those discussions talked about my salary. Until actually, I think, weeks into my service here. I go, oh, yeah, by the way, am I going to get paid? You know? and at that time, ICC's total budget was less than a third of what it is today. And it was a really awkward moment in the conversation when Reggie looked at me and said, I didn't really think about the money thing at all. And he said, I really don't know how we're going to pay you. And so for the first year in ICC, I re- basically received a part-time salary for a full-time job. And we pretty much burned through our life savings, serving the first two years at ICC to supplement our salary. And you can look and go, oh, you're such a great guy. Oh, you're our hero. I could never do that. It's not about that, is it? It's not. It's about a Christ that bids us come and give up everything. He says the kingdom of God is like a person that discovered a pearl of great price. And when he found that pearl, he sold everything that he had. And everyone looks at this guy like a lunatic as he's laughing, giddy, and saying, this is a crazy man in front of us. But he says, I have found the greatest treasure in this world. Let's pray. I want to ask you, what grip money has on your life. Maybe it's hard for you to even acknowledge that it does have a hold of you. As Jesus says, be on your guard. Watch out. Because greed comes in so many different forms. It manifests itself in so many different ways, and yet it comes along with its own defense mechanisms to justify yourselves, to alleviate yourself of any feelings of guilt. But as Jesus says, there is such an illusion that you can serve both God and money. But he says you can't. You can't. Because that service is going to pull your heart in a certain direction. There will be a gravity there. And 
eventually, one of those devotions is going to win out. You cannot serve both God and money. Who can live this life? Who can? Who can live this life? Who can do these things? It's crazy. It's impossible. And I pray that there will be a moment in your heart when you're confronted by the impossibility of it. Where you, like the rich ruler, almost feel that you're going to have to walk away disappointed. Because as I said last week, when you come to the end of yourself, that is where you will meet God and his power. If you don't see Jesus in this way, you can pray that God would open the eyes of your heart to see the infinite worth and value of the one who bids you come, follow me. Like I said, if you've been a Christian for a number of years, and maybe there were seasons of your younger life when you knew that passion, but the truth is, your heart has grown old and hard. And the truth is, your heart has wandered to the things of this world. I want you to respond not with heroic prayers to do better, promises of willpower to win the day, but I want you to respond with a heart of worship that turns the gaze to Christ. It says, open my eyes to see that you are that pearl that is priceless so that I can let go of the things that hold my heart. And it doesn't even have to feel like such a battle. That there would be in me a hope of heaven that is real, that longs, that longs for the day when I can finally cash in for everything that I've invested in, in my life. I wonder how many of us fear death because that is going to mean the end to all of the things that we've built up in our life. I think one of the greatest hallmarks of every believer ought to be the way we face death. Without fear, but with hope and joy. Because it says, that is where my treasure is. That's where I've staked my claim. As Paul says, if there is no resurrection, we are the biggest idiots in this world. Because that's where I have put my entire life. All of my life savings has been invested in that singular dream. If Jesus isn't the Christ, if he isn't who he says he is, then I was the biggest fool in this world. What I gave up, what I could have had, if Christ isn't Lord. But if he is Lord, as I believe he is, then there is a treasure awaiting us that makes it silly to talk about sacrifice and the things that we are asked to give up in this life. Because what we're going to gain is so much greater than that. It's not about heroism. It's about faith to believe the promises of God that these things are true. Would you just pray for a few minutes and our worship team will come to lead us in a time of response. Let's pray to the Lord. 